Last week, I think we began looking at the question of uh, uniqueness and <coughs> human <coughs> individuality. Well, we began looking at one fundamental angle of the subject of uniqueness or individuality and how to discover perhaps one's own, <coughs> one's own unique identity and therefore role. <coughs> And we, we, opened, we opened the subject. Let's move on to another fundamental aspect of the subject. It have to be seen in tandem with what we discussed last week as well, but also stands on its own. And that is the problem or the question of the nature of uniqueness or the nature of individu- individuality from a Torah perspective. <coughs> what exactly does it mean? First of all, <coughs> First of all, try to. It's a difficult subject because each aspect of the subject requires all the others in order to make clear, <coughs> like so much of the deeper wisdom, which means that really you have to hear this whole discussion twice. You have to hear it once just to hear all the elements, and then you really have to hear how they all interrelate to each other. But <coughs> let's at least begin the exercise. <coughs> First of all, the most fundamental statement that needs to be made here is that Judaism views the world as made up of unique individuals. In other words, what you are meant to be discovering here and evincing, manifesting in your life is the uniqueness that you were put here to manifest. (coughs) You were not put here to be a clone of somebody else. The the end point, the reason that you're here, the purpose, the end point that you're driving for is the discovery of what it is that makes you unique. It's not the end point. That's the means. The, the, the end point is how you then take that uniqueness. So, in order to achieve and do what you have to do, you first have to discover what is unique about you so that you can do it. Last week we discussed some of the subject of <coughs> how one goes about actually discovering in practice, or perhaps one step before that, the theory of looking at one's tools and figuring out how they apply to one's own role or how they, in fact, define one's role. (coughs) But it has to be appreciated that we are looking for a unique expression from each individual. Now, that raises a number of issues. First of all, how exactly is that to be done? Some of last week's subject is relevant here. goes beyond that. Second problem we touched on last week, although we didn't answer it, how is it that such a narrowly defining, such a very meticulously normative system, such as Jewish practice, <coughs> can develop individual individuals? After all, we're all obliged by the same halachic, <coughs> more or less, we're all obliged by the same halachic requirements, and those requirements are extremely exacting. Right? As I pointed out last week, the code of Jewish law, the Shulchan Aruch, requires that you tie your shoelaces in a certain way, you cut your nails in a certain order. You handle yourself in the bathroom in a certain fashion. It's very, very meticulously, narrowly laid out. How is a system that is so defining for everyone going to achieve such unique expression? Well, that's a fundamental problem. If you asked me to design a system that would likely produce robotic clones of each other, then I would probably come up with such a 
narrowly defining system. I would imagine that if you drill people so that every action they do is practiced and moves along the same groove, <coughs> that you would develop sameness. <coughs> and you see that Jewish practice doesn't do that for some reason. You see that people who follow Jewish practice exceedingly, exactingly, and they become great exponents of Torah living and Torah thought. They become very, very violently individualistic. Some of the Torah, some of the arguments within the Torah world about certain areas are, are, are well known. They can be flamingly uh, extreme. The points of view and the expression of those points of view. How does that happen from people who've trained themselves so meticulously in such a? The point clear? Point should be clear, and therefore that needs thought. Now. Let's, let's try and analyze this. Let, let's start like this, one thing at a time. First of all, let's note that what we're driving at is an understanding of individuality. Secondly, we're driving at understanding how that individuality can manifest within the requirements of certain kinds of behavior or of belonging to a Jewish people that is really a unity in itself. If a Jewish people is such a homogeneous unity or such an intense unity, then how does each individual express such a uniqueness without breaking the totality, yes, when you fit into a group, you're constrained. When you fit in to something that requires you to fit in in a certain way, then you're constrained. In fact, if you fit in as, 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 in as detailed a fashion as Judaism requires, then you're ultimately constrained. If you're ultimately constrained in your self-expression, then how do you achieve such a uniqueness? A remarkable question. But I'd like to try and demonstrate and try and work out with you that in fact, this is the only method, the only genuine method of achieving real individuality. And on the contrary, I'd like you to to see, if possible, that what the secular world holds up as real individuality actually is a very, very boring sameness. As a guise of individuality and great heroic individuality, but actually you'll see that that world really trains people to drive at the same things in the same way. But let's try and work out the subject together. Classic analysis of the subject, particular angle of the subject that we need to look at, is most classically expressed by Rav Dessler. <coughs> I'll try to paraphrase and explain his words <coughs> just in, in order to be able to understand the subject. There's a, a lot to talk about here and a lot to understand, so please try to stay with me and let's try to, try to concentrate and, and hopefully we'll learn something new together. Now, Dessler says like this. Uh, we're going to have to backtrack a little bit and build up a concept here in order, to, in order to understand. He says that there are three levels to the organization of the world. Uh, we're talking, after all, here about the harmonization of details, of parts in a whole. The way the parts, namely each individual Jew in the Jewish people, or at a broader level each human being in the whole cosmic structure, or if you really want to be broad, every part of the universe, every molecule, every atom, as it fits into the broad scope of the whole cosmic structure can be broken down at any of those levels. Let's focus for tonight <coughs> on, the, on the, uh, the, 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 um, the dimension of each Jew within the Jewish people, although it's much broader than that. This, the organization that will lead us to a correct understanding, the depth or the concept that will lead us to a correct understanding of that, is based on the notion, the observation, that the world has three levels of structure. Okay, stay with me carefully. <coughs> you can discern or, div or, or, or mm, you, can, you can discern here, yeah, you can pick out Three levels of structure on which the world is based. One of the most remarkable aspects of this discussion is, is the structure that the discussion itself has. Remarkable thing. The Torah mind and it puts itself to such a, such a, such a lucid analysis of this remarkable thing. But he says that order in the world, 
order, structure, symmetry, symmetry and, and harmonic resonance in the world. And that subject has its own structure. And the structure of the subject is as follows. There are three levels of order in the world. Right? We want, we're interested tonight in the third. <coughs> but in order to understand it well, let's build up the concept correctly. <coughs> the first level of order is what he calls Seder L'Shem Seder. Seder L'Shem Seder means order for the sake of order. This is what in English you would call the intrinsic order or structure of the universe. I'm not going to go into great detail here. Just let's point out this, that the universe is structured and organized. Right? One of the in the world that seeks proofs of a divine existence or proofs of a transcendent reality, this is one of the underlying precepts, one of the underlying observations that, that, that's needed in what they call the argument from design. The fact that the world's not an entropic system of, of disarray and, uh, and chaos. <coughs> it's in fact a highly organized, I- I- intricately organized structure. It has inherent within it an incredible symmetry and structure. Now, that's an observation in the world. That's a broadly accepted observation in the world in all of secular science as well. What's fascinating from a Torah perspective is that the order of the world is a mirror image, or a parallel if you like, a projection of the order of your mind. In other words, as we studied in this forum before, the human mind bears the same pattern, carries the same pattern that the world does. After all, our teaching is that the physical world is an expression of the spiritual world, <coughs> just like the body has the same pattern or picture that the mind does, so the entire external world, the entire physical universe, has the same pattern that your mind does. In fact, it's a remarkable thing that one of the aims of learning Torah is to build in your mind an objective picture of the world. That's what Avsim Chavasman used to say, is that Hashem wants you to have in your mind a clear and objective picture of the world. Learning, learning Torah gives you a clear and objective picture of the world. First of all, it teaches the objective reality about the world, and secondly, it develops your tools into tools of objectivity. You see, even if I tell you, even if, it is, even if I describe to you, or show to you an objective picture, if you're not an objective person, you won't see that picture objectively. You'll see it the way it's filtered through your own bias. Is this clear? And therefore, if you wish to see something objectively, first of all, you need to see it, it needs, it needs to be presented objectively, you need the information, you need the correct objective information, but you also need a tool of vision that is not itself biased. Those two things need. <coughs> when you learn Torah, Torah shapes your tools, the tools of the mind, into, ri- into rigorously disciplined analytical, objective analytical tools. And not only does Torah train the tool to be analytical and objective, but it presents objective material. Torah describes the world objectively. So that the, the ideal formula for perceiving the world objectively, for building a picture in your mind, <coughs> of the true and objective nature of the world, Torah has both those elements. But the underlying observation here is that your mind is capable of the same order that the world contains. Your mind obeys the same rules of structure that the world does. In fact, the reason that you pick up the symmetry of the world and appreciate it and understand it is because your mind inherently has the same order. The reason that you know that the outer world is not random, the reason that you know that it's symmetrical and organized is because your mind has the same, re- your mind has the same symmetry. And therefore there's a resonance that's set up between... Let me give you an example on a, on a more... More graphic example. <coughs> you know that when you see, you know that when you see symmetry. Let's not get into philosophical discussions about whether order has to be symmetrical or not. And I'm not going to get into that. Let's just talk about it at a simple level. When you see symmetry in the world, you know that what's set up in you is a resonance with that symmetry, and you know that it depends on the state of the symmetry or harmony within your mind, how you perceive the external symmetry. 
Let me try and illustrate this. It's a f- wonderful, wonderful idea, this. It's yes, some fantastic ramifications. <coughs> if you are... At the way you respond to a situation of symmetry depends on what your inner symmetry is at the time when you relate to that external experience. Example. Let's say you're traveling on a train. Traveling on a train. A long journey on a train. Now, a train is a very symmetrical and rhythmic experience, right? As you go on the train, it's clickety-click, clickety-click, clickety-click. How do you respond to that sound? It depends on where you're going. If you're going on a journey to some longed-for, anticipated destination, right, and you've been looking forward to this, and you're looking forward to your destination, the sound is wonderful. It is soothing and musical. You never get bored of it, and you hear in that rhythm cadences and melodies, and it's absolutely marvelous. However, if you're traveling to a feared destination, where you're in inner turmoil and torment, and you're going to a destination that you fear, the sound drives you crazy. You can't stand the sound. It drives in on your mind, and it... Why? Because when you're in inner harmony, then an outer harmony resonates with the inner harmony, and and the resonance between the two is beautiful. Beautiful. Music and symmetrical, it's absolutely peaceful and beautiful. But when there's an outer symmetry and an inner asymmetry, then the inner asymmetry, the inner turmoil, is being mocked by the outer symmetry. Do you hear what's happening? And you can't stand it. It's an experience of psychic pain. It's a remarkable thing. Is this clear? If somebody is... uh, Somebody comes home from a day that went absolutely perfectly... Not like I'm sure all of you experience all the time. You come home from a day, person arrives home, the day went absolutely perfectly, everything was exactly perfect as it should. Day of tremendous achievement and harmony. Person walks in and he sees the furniture, the chairs around, arranged around the table in perfect symmetrical positions. One chair just slightly out of line. You know what the tendency is? The person walks over and he just pushes it exactly into place. <coughs> That's the response. Person comes home one day from a day that was shocking. Absolute turmoil, everything went wrong. The person comes home seething with turmoil. Walks into the house and sees all the furniture absolutely perfectly symmetrically arranged. Walks over and kicks them out of line. It's usually not the furniture they get kicked. It's usually, <coughs> you know. But that's what it is. Why? And that's how, that's how relationships, by the way, that's one of the reasons that relationships get destroyed. It's because there's an inner disharmony in the individual. And it's mocked by a... Yeah, the immature individual who's, who's in inner turmoil, not at peace inwardly, and somebody manifests a control and a peace and a symmetry towards them, very often there's a destructive and self-destructive lashing out. You know why? Because the serenity of the exterior and its symmetry and harmony is mocking the inner turmoil, and, it, and, and, and its expression is an attempt to set the external world into disarray as well. Again, it's hard to find the exact words for these things, but if you've, if you've ever lived, and especially if you've ever lived as an immature individual, which I'm sure you've never been, then you'll know, <coughs> you'll know the truth of this idea. So far, so good? Let's take it a little further. What we're saying is, what we're saying is that the inner situation of symmetry is demanding an external situation that is reflecting or, 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 or being... A mirror, yes, for the inner experience. And then there's a, and paradoxically you can have a situation of turmoil inwardly that feels at peace, strangely and paradoxically, when the situation externally is in turmoil as well. Because then at least there's a sympathy between the two. 
That's one of the most beautiful examples. This is not directly our subject, but can't resist going into this. Is that um, Rav Miller from Gateshead, one of the great Talmudim of Rav Nesla, explains as follows. You know that, again, there's a temptation here to spend hours on this subject, but just briefly for those who've had the experience of studying Western art and culture, <coughs> if you, <coughs> and I'm no expert at Western culture, I can assure you, but if you, if you look at the development of Western culture, arts, art in particular, art in the broader sense, over the last four, five, or perhaps six centuries, you'll note a remarkable phenomenon, a remarkable phenomenon. I'm not sure that without this Torah understanding that we generated this evening, it can be interpreted correctly. The phenomenon is that if you look at art as it's progressed, and I wouldn't be stubborn here about the details, and I'm sure most of you know a lot more than I do about the specifics and the details, but I think a very interesting thesis can be made out, which is that if you watch the, the, the artistic expression of our culture over the last few centuries, you'll notice a breakdown from symmetry to asymmetry. The Torah explanation of that would be that as the pre-Messianic era ad, uh, approaches and there becomes a fracture and an intrinsic disharmony and chaos in the human condition, then the art of a culture, which is by definition an outer expression of its inner core and its inner being, the art and culture of a, of a, of a culture, of a nation and of, a, of an empire and of a culture, will express the inner condition. Art outwardly expresses the inner condition. Now, there, there's a famous poem that was written about trench warfare. The, the, the poet happens to be Jewish. That's not, not the point, no. Happens to be from a famous Jewish Sephardi family in this country. Name's not important. He wrote a poem about soldiers in the trenches in the First World War. Right? The poem's called Over the Top. Over the Top was the term they used in trench warfare where the soldiers would be given the order to climb over the edge of the trench and rush into enemy fire, which of course was the most terrifying, terrifying experience. The poem has no lines of equal length. If you read that poem, it describes the emotions of this young soldier in the trench who's, who's about to be given the order to go up over the top of the trench and run into enemy fire. And the poem is written, it has some staccato lines and some long smooth lines, some short, some long. Right? The poem has no structure, there's no rhyme, no rhythm, no why. Because the, extern, the external mode of the poem is describing his inner chaos and turmoil. So it's written in that way. And that the outer expression demands to have the form <coughs> of the emotion that it's expressing. If you apply this to our culture in general, you'll see that the art of our culture has experienced a, a fascinating transition from incredibly tight symmetry to almost total asymmetry over the last few centuries. And without going into great detail, I just you know, urge you to think about, or suggest that you think about some of the art forms that, with which we are familiar. Painting, for example. Painting. Right? If you go back a few centuries, you'll note that painting was entirely representational. If you go back to the pre-classical phase, for example, you'll know that painting then was absolutely meticulously representational. Right? As some of the recent cynics have said, there was a time in the history of painting when a painting of a bowl of fruit looked like a bowl of fruit. Right? No, there's no guarantee that it does today, or that it will today. Right? That's how it was. It was incredibly representational. If you follow painting, read graphic art, throughout the, the last few centuries, you'll see that it went through phases of increasing disharmony and asymmetry. It's a remarkable thing. Right? Not that many years ago, there was a phase in painting where things were shown in fractured, fractured cubes, 
but then it broke down even further. And if you go into modern and postmodern art, there's nothing symmetrical about it at all. Not at all. In fact, there's one modern painter who paints by facing his canvas backwards. He stretches a giant canvas out on the floor behind him and throws the paint over his shoulder onto the canvas and then has his dog walk around on the canvas and, and sells those works for millions. But if you go to the Museum of Modern Art in New York, they have a canvas that covers one whole wall which has one red spot, one red blotch at the bottom of the canvas, right? The painting sold, they bought it for millions. It's called Angst or something like that. And, um, you know, you know, if what's fascinating is that if a painting like that had been displayed at, a, at an exhibition 300 years ago, they would have certified the painter as insane. They would have either been personally offended or had him certified as insane. It's a remarkable thing, a remarkable thing. If you trace the history of interior design, for example, interior design 400 years ago was... You know that if you, if you travel to the Lake District in this country, I must say I've never been there, but I'm told by people who've been there, that if you travel to the Lake District, you can visit Wordsworth's house. <coughs> yes? Wordsworth's house where he wrote as a national monument, and you can visit it today, where it has been preserved in the style in which it was appointed when he was working there. They tell me that when you walk into the ornate drawing room, right, you walk through a very ornate door. And the guide points out to you that in the door, in the wall that you're facing is an identical door. That door is a fake. You hear this? You walk through a door that's very ornate. You find yourself facing the opposite wall of the room in which there's an identical door which is a fake. The door doesn't go anywhere. You know why it's there? Because in that age people couldn't bear to live in a room that wasn't symmetrically appointed. You know that? They felt, they felt, a, a, they felt a, 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 an inner fracture when living in an environment that wasn't perfectly symmetrical. Isn't that amazing? To the extent they'd put a fake door on a wall so that there should not be an imbalance between the two opposite walls. Have you, got, have you gone into, into any apartment today that is furnished in the modern style? There's one purple wall, there's one green wall, there's a couple of angles that are nearly symmetrical. You know why? People feel uncomfortable now living in a symmetrical environment. <laughs> Architectures like that. Sculpture. Sculpture. Go back a few hundred years. All sculpture was meticulously representational. You could see every sinew. You could see a lot of things you shouldn't have seen, too. I mean, they were <laughs> all there. <coughs> Spelled out in absolute perfect representational detail. And you know what became of sculpture as you moved to the... If you go to an exhibition of modern sculpture, <laughs> yeah, you'll find... Uh, an you'll, you'll find a sculpture that consists of a few tin cans welded together with a couple of cogs from an engine. Uh, you know, and that's presented as... Today, they, think, they have a thing today called situation sculpture. You know what that is? Situation art. It's an exhibition of sculpture where this, the, the exhibit consists of a person standing on one leg. A person, as long as he can, you know, balancedly needs lunch. The person stands there. You know, that's, uh, people walk around commenting what it means existentially. <laughs> Music, for example. I mean, I hope the point is <coughs> coming clear, no? Music. If you go back uh, to Baroque music, <coughs> Baroque music is incredibly symmetrical. In fact, it's remarkable how it can have the beauty that it has when it so tightly fits its, its rules. Baroque music is incredibly meticulously symmetrical. When you move beyond Baroque into the classical period, it's much freer, but it's still very, very tightly organized. When you enter the Romantic phase, 
So then it's much freer, but it's still very, very, very organized, very much adheres to the rules, but it's much freer. When you get into modern music, you get into atonal music, you know, when Stravinsky's first famous piece was aired publicly in Paris, you know, what his first atonal piece was not written on a semitone scale, you know, with no, no particular time, that, you know. So when it was first played in public, the audience tried to kill him. Know that? The audience tried to kill him. The police had escorted him from the auditorium. They were so offended by music like that. But what happened became accepted, and today, and today you have a composer who composes <coughs> on the moving staves of a mobile. You know that? They hang the score in front of the in front of the pianist, on a divided, and as the wind, as the breeze blows them, he plays whatever he can see, moving in front of his eyes. There's another modern composer, whose concert consists of, he's putting a cat on the keyboard, and he sticks it with a pin. While the cat tries to get off the keyboard, the audience listens to the... Again, we're not commenting about whether this is good or bad art. It may, in fact, be good art. It may, I don't know, it may be good art. If it's a representation of what's happening in the mind of a generation, it could be good art. That's not the point here. I'm not, I'm not an art critic or I don't know much about it. I'm not, that's not, you can make your own mind up about it. You might think it's wonderful. That's not the point. The point is that it's an expression outwardly. It's remarkable. And you, in every mode of artistic expression, the same thing has occurred. It's remarkable. In theatre, again, if you know anything about theatre, you'll know that a few hundred years ago, theatre was highly stylized. Right? There were rules, a, a comedy, a tragedy, the way it proceeded, there were certain, there were elements that had to be there. And in the early part of this century, and, and theatre entered, entered a phase of the angry Yan Ming, if you remember, and after that you have theatre of the absurd. Modern theatre right, is theatre of the absurd. One modern play, for example, one of the most famous playwrights of this century, who wrote that kind of theatre, that play consists of two characters who spend the entire play two garbage cans. The set consists of two garbage cans. And every now and then, one of them, the lid lifts, and a few existentially important words are said from the garbage can, and the lid closes. That's, that's how the play... Is that right? Poetry. A Shakespearean sonnet, its, its depth and beauty and its, um, its greatness is expressed by how closely it adheres to the rules of a Shakespearean sonnet. It's written in iambic pentameter, you know, which is absolutely, and they all do. Modern poetry... In modern poetry, there's no, there are no straight lines. There's nothing spelled correctly. There's no capitals. There's no, you know, there's no, there's no rhyme. There's no rhythm. There's no, some of the lines run up, some run down. Some. It's a fascinating observation. Fascinating. Fascinating observation. And it's fascinating that it runs through all the art forms of a culture. It's a remarkable thing. The Torah observation is that if there's an asymmetry and a disharmony in the external form is a reflection of a breakdown of symmetry from the inner, from the inner core. Remarkable thing. Anyway, that's one fascinating application that, that perhaps applies to our culture. I wouldn't be stubborn about it. It's for your, for your consideration. Let's move on. Let's summarize. We've said that the first level of order is order for the sake of order. It is the structure inherent in the world. It's the structure inherent in the mind that apprehends the structure in the external world. The resonance that's set up between the two. Right? It is the basis for all conception of structure and order and symmetry. If there weren't the underlying structure, then we wouldn't be able to, we wouldn't be able to do science, mathematics, or any other, any other logical or organized or ordered process right? if it were not that the basis of our existence is founded on a fundamental order. Let's move to the second level, right, which is getting more relevant to what we immediately need. The second level of order 
is what he calls Seva the Shame Tetsu Oisov. Tots Ota, right? Tetsu Oisov. It's order for the sake of its results or its output. Let's try and understand. When the parts of a whole are so disposed that they, that they, they are organized in such a way that the whole is established and works, that's this kind of order. Example. Much easier to give graphic examples. When books are indexed in a library, right, can you see that a library is a collection of books, but it has an order. The order is the index. <coughs> can you see that? We're not talking here about... We're talking about a specific order that's imposed on components. The components are put together in that order in such a way that they work. Right? Is this correct? If you didn't have a good index to your library, your library may be useless. The order is essential to the use of the collection of things that you have. That's what an index does to a library. Incidentally, what's fascinating about this level of order, the great Torah, Torah authority of Khan Vassman used to point out, what's fascinating about this level is that the index is primary and essential to the function of the parts, and the better your index is, the more parts you can have and the more useful it will be. But the worse your index is, then the more parts you have, the worse off you are. Remarkable thing. Again, you have to understand this. If you have 20 books, if you have a collection of 20 books only, and your index is shocking, you have no index at all, <laughs> it doesn't matter that much. You'll still find whichever book you need. But if you have 20,000 books, and your index is bad, you're a great deal worse off than if you only had 20 books. Can you see that? Because you'll never find anything. To the, the remarkable observation, to the extent that your index is working, to that extent, the power of your components is manifest. To the extent that your, your index is not working, you're better off with less. What he, of course he was getting at was, if you have an organized and disciplined mind, you're better off knowing more. But if you have a disorganized mind, you're not improved by, by knowing more. You become more of a confused problem. The more details you know, if your mind's not organized. The primary objective of study, of learning in any field, but certainly in Torah, is to have a disciplined and organized mind. Once you have a disciplined and organized mind, the more you take in, the more powerful you'll be. Can we connect the first and second levels? Example that strikes me, it's well known that the altar of Kelm, great Torah sage of the previous generation, who was one of the leaders of, the, of, the, of that movement within Torah, which is dedicated to character building, personality development, they said that when he used to, listen carefully, they said that when he used to go and visit his son in Yeshiva, he would travel a great distance to go and visit the boy. When he arrived in the yeshiva, he never went to look for his son in the basement. He used to walk into the boy's dormitory room. And if he saw that his shoes were neatly together under the bed, if the boy's shoes were neatly together under his bed, he would go home after a long voyage without even seeing his son and without interrupting his studies. Why? Because if he saw that the young man were living in an organized external environment, it was a sign that his inner, inner symmetry was clean and organized. And if that were true, he'd be learning well. Remarkable thing. Makes you think of your room, doesn't it? <laughs> okay. needs thought, it needs sensitive application but that's the idea let's move to the third level Okay. so the second level is, is, is the, the index that is applied to a library, it's the system it's knowing where everything fits correctly so that it can be correctly utilized and brought into relationship with all the other parts correctly that is this level of all. Let's move to the third. Now here, this is where we need to concentrate, because the third level is what's relevant immediately to our discussion and uniqueness of each individual among the Jewish people and at large. Please stay with me carefully. The third level of order is called Seder L'Shem Achdu Sapu'ula, which means order for the sake of the oneness of function 
of the parts that are organized in this unity. Example. Let's say you are taking components that you put together, parts of an engine, for example. Take parts of an engine, and you construct them correctly. They have to be each in their correct place, in the correct relationship to all the others for the engine to function. Clear? That's the kind of order we're talking about. If something's out of place, it will not work. The parts have to be correctly organized. When you build a car, a motor vehicle, you need everything in its right place. The rubber must be on the tires, and the glass must be in the windows. If you put the glass on the wheels, and the rubber in the windows you're in trouble. That's not the way to do it. You need each piece and each material has to be exactly, each component has to be exactly where it has to be, <coughs> then the thing functions. <coughs> the obvious problem that must be bothering you, I can see it all racing through all of your minds instantly, is what's the difference between this level of order and the one in the previous level? Isn't the organization of books in a library very similar? Isn't it? Isn't, isn't an index that imposes itself on a library, making sure that every piece is exactly where it has to be, isn't it very similar to the parts that are put into an engine where each piece has to be exactly where it has to be? It's certainly true that each piece has to be where it has to be. Right? You're constrained in that sense. In an index of a library, each book has to be in only one place. That's where it needs to be if the, if the, if Index is functioning perfectly. When you put an engine together, each component has to be exactly where it has to be in the engine, otherwise in the wrong place it won't work. What's the difference? The difference is this. Right? Fundamental difference. When the index to a library, when a book in a library is out of place, or if the whole index collapses, if the whole index collapses, and all of the books are out of order, each book still remains a valid item. You may have trouble finding it, but it still remains fully valid as, as it was before. Can you see this? Each book has the value and the wisdom that it contained before. You may have trouble finding it, <coughs> but you've not affected <coughs> the intrinsic nature of the part. <coughs> when one piece of an engine is out of place, then it, it means nothing at all. It loses all its value, and it causes the rest of the machine to lose all its value as well. Can you see that? If you take one piece of an engine and move it slightly out of place, the whole thing grinds to a halt. You don't have one useful piece that's doing what it should be doing, like a book in a library. But not only that, not only is it not doing what it should be doing, nothing else can do what it's supposed to do either. It's a remarkable thing. This is the level of organization and unity of the Jewish people. And mystically, this is the level of organization and unity of the universe. Each, hear this well, each piece has to be exactly where it has to be. <coughs> when it is exactly where it has to be, <coughs> and it's ultimately constrained, there's no degree of freedom, it has to be exactly where it has to be, it achieves the value of the whole structure. Because if it weren't there, the whole structure couldn't function. When it's where it has to be, it's unnoticeable. It's so utterly constrained and appears to be so insignificant. <coughs> yes, that it... Are you with me? Let, hear the paradox. Hear the, all, all mystical truths, right, at the higher level are always paradoxical. It's a fundamental principle. Based on a fundamental paradox. <coughs> when you have an engine and you have a little piece, <coughs> that's where it has to be. <coughs> Tiny little screw in the carburetor of your engine. That little screw is worthless. Worthless. Not even a coin that could buy it. It's, so it's, it's a, a little scrap of metal whose intrinsic worth is unmeasurable. Smaller than the worth of the smallest coin. But it's worth the entire engine when it's there. When it's where it has to be, you don't notice it. You don't think about it. But you know when you realize? When that thing falls out of place... When that thing falls out of place, if you're going through the desert sands of Death Valley, 
and you're 500 miles from nowhere. And this machine means your life, because it's getting you across the desert. And one tiny little screw in the carburetor falls out of place and gets buried in the desert sand. You know what it becomes worth to you? You know what you'd give for that little screw? The value of the entire machine, maybe even more, maybe the value of your life. While it was where it had to be, you weren't thinking about it, and it was completely unnoticed, it was insignificant in its pathetic smallness. But when it steps out of line, it reveals to you that everything else revolved around that piece, and that nothing could do anything. Un- you know what's going on? At this level of unity, you have each piece doing what it has to do, and it achieves the paradoxical status of being something that's meaningless on its own, and yet meaning the entirety of the structure. It has to be exactly where it has to be. And each piece is bound to all the others in such a way that they would be nothing at all if it weren't for each of the others. And each of the others is related to all of the others, including this one, in such a way that if it weren't there doing what it has to be, I'm nothing at all. That's how the Jewish people are. If you're not doing exactly what you have to be, if you haven't done the work on yourself to discover who you should be and get busy doing what you have to be doing, I am zero. And I hold it against you. Because you're stopping me being the Jew that I could be. And when I fail to work on myself and discover what's unique about me and get busy doing it with my full strength, I'm holding you back and allowing you to achieve nothing. That's how we're organized. You know that? Let's try and get this clear. (coughs) When things are put together in this way, not like books in the library, but like an engine, when you have a radio set, and the radio is organized by all the components being where they have to be, If you take out one millimeter of wire someplace, not a transistor, not the battery, just take out one millimeter of wire, how much is the value of that little scrap of metal? It's utterly trivial. But the whole thing does not work. It's no good saying to me, well, most of it's there. What are you worried about? On average, it's okay. Statistically, majority. doesn't work that way. That's not the way radios work. That's how Torah works. The Rambam says if you take one word out of Sefer Torah, you have one letter cracked in the Sefer the whole thing is invalid. It's no Sefer. Ah, you can still read it. It makes sense. You're not missing any information. There's one crack in a letter. Nothing doing. And very often people who don't understand the spiritual world, they say to you, ah, you're being petty. You're religious Jews, you're obsessive and petty. Now you're looking at your mezuzah like this and like that and like this. It's a crack in a letter. What's the problem? You can read it, can't you? How does he feel about a crack in one of the wires in his radio? Tell him, what are you being petty and obsessive about? It's mostly there. <laughs> it work that way. doesn't work that way. Or when a child is being formed, and there's one gene missing, one molecule missing in millions and billions of others, tell him, what are you so worried about? It's one gene. It's one mo- Not so simple. Life might depend on that. If it's part of an integrated circuit, then each piece is needed, and each piece is entirely needed, and nothing else is anything without this thing. You're not being petty when you look at your mezuzah. If you're looking at that which makes it alive, the difference between life and not being alive, the difference between a receiver that receives the waves, <coughs> or transmit them, transmits them, the difference is an infinitesimal difference. But it's a critical difference. Each piece is essential. But the paradox here, again, is that each piece is nothing on its own. <coughs> yeah, but when it's where it has to be, and it sacrifices all its individuality to be free to be wherever it would like to be, and it has to be where it has to be, the paradox is then it becomes everything. <coughs> Can you feel this? You have to give up your freedom in order to achieve it. You know, the Bali Musa say you should have two pieces of paper in your pockets at all times. On one should be written, I am nothing, 
And on the other should be written, the world was created for me. You hear that? That's exactly correct. You are absolutely nothing. If you wander out of place, you step aside. One step out of place. <coughs> you're a worthless piece of biological protoplasm. You're nothing. <coughs> you're a biological organism. You're nothing. <coughs> when you step into place and lose that freedom to move around where you want to be, you achieve the greatness of the universe. Do you know that? The whole Jewish people revolving around you. The lights come on. The whole thing works because you're doing what you have to be doing. But you have to give up the freedom to be anyplace else. But the paradox is when you're anyplace else, you feel incredible. Look at me. But in fact, you're absolutely nothing. You're wrecking the whole thing. <coughs> you know that, I think we've discussed before the idea that all spiritual truths are resonating with our emotional makeup. It fits with what we said earlier in this discussion as well. That everything that Hashem wishes you to understand spiritually, He gives you an emotional reflection of that thing. Is this clear? Where you, you sense that thing intrinsically and intimately so that you can appreciate it in its external manifestation. You are built, listen, listen well, you're built with an emotional paradox. You know that? We are constructed with an emotional paradox. We constructed in such a way that we thrill to being individuals out of sync and out of step. And we also thrill to fitting into a crew or a team that moves in total, absolute, oiled perfection. You know that psychologically that's a paradox. Can you see that? <laughs> psychologically, if you, if you achieve your sense of identity by being unique and out of, out of phase, you should be threatened with a feeling of non-existence when you move into a larger structure and lose your uniqueness. Or conversely, if you achieve a sense of identity or security, whatever it is, <clears throat> when you move into a larger structure, you should feel lonely and threatened when you step out of line. But we don't. We thrill to both. You know that? Again, let's try and make this clear. Again, it's, it's, it's men more naturally thrill. This relates a little bit to what we said last week. Men more naturally thrill to be in what they call the Lone Ranger Syndrome. And women more naturally thrill to functioning as part of a team where everything works together. Those are male and female modes. Each one has to work on his problem or her problem, which is the opposite. There's a natural gift for maleness and femaleness here. <clears throat> but the thing remains true. The Lone Ranger Syndrome right, is the character, almost always male. Women can, women can go to sleep for the next few minutes. The, the, male, the male Lone Ranger thing is the character who... <coughs> what can I do? Let, let's, let's bring it down to its ridiculous, <coughs> absolutely ridiculous lowest common denominator. He's caught on his own goal line. Yes, with about three and a half seconds left in the match. And on this next three seconds depends that they're losing. The next three seconds or half a minute depends the entire future of the team, the, the match, the championship, the, basically everything in the world. And he's caught on his own goal line with disaster staring the whole team in the face and it's inevitable and he gets the ball. And with a most incredible, dazzling display of utter genius and brilliance, defeats every single member of the opposite team and his own people getting in his way. And with half a second left, scores the goal that... Huh? That's that. Every young Western male... And if you say you haven't had that fantasy, you lie. <laughs> That's the Lone Ranger syndrome. Totally unaided on his own. And yet, despite that, despite that, there's also a thrill when you totally lose your... When you watch a mass gymnastics display, have you ever seen such a thing that moves in absolute and total precision as one body? It's a remarkable experience. By the way, it's a remarkable experience to participate in such a thing. 
when you watch an aerobatic display, have you ever seen an incredibly precise aerobatic display? The thrill there, if you analyze it carefully, is not just because it's dangerous and they're very good. The thrill is that suddenly pieces that are separate pieces suddenly lock into being one thing. It's an incredible thing to, to experience, to witness and to experience. Why? Why? Because when you're a piece that fits into something like that, people who play very expertly in crew or team sports, where, where, the, where the thing works only because the crew is so interdependent and so incredibly in tune with each other, that before the cooperation is asked for, it's given. And before the next move is made, it's anticipated. And the next person is exactly in the place he has to be before this person is even in his place. But when he g- There's an incredible thrill to that. The onlooker doesn't see the individuals. The onlooker sees the thrill. And you know what happens when a person plays such a thing well? You lose a sense of your own uniqueness and you sense a sense of the size or the dimension of the entire team. You suddenly swell in your own conscience. It's very hard to find the words here. You'll excuse me. But if you've ever done it, you'll know. You swell to the, to the proportion of the team. You could never do that on your own. One of the most striking experiences, if you've ever had this experience, as I have, if you've ever been in a military situation, ever had a march in a, in a battalion of thousands of people, what happens is, when it's trained, when it's well drilled, it's thousands of people marching together. And suddenly it locks into absolute perfect step. There's a very interesting psychological thing that happens there. It can be almost impossible at such a time to feel even your uniqueness. You know that even if you're utterly exhausted, for example, in such a thing, you absolutely lose it. You, you don't feel that. You carried... It's a remarkable thing. And you know what happens? There's a paradox there as you're marching along. And you don't even make any effort. In such a situation, you don't even move your body. It moves automatically because it's part of a, of a larger... It's a remarkable, indescribable thing. And while that's happening to you, there's a very interesting psychological temptation just to do that. You know why? Because then your mother will see you. <laughs> what will happen is mom will be very happy. They'll shoot you. That's what I do. Why? Because that one little thing will wreck the whole thing. It's a remarkable thing. There's a, there's a temptation to be the one that's... And that's the immaturity in this field. The immaturity says, I don't want to be where you place me. I want to stand here. That's the childish response. I want to look at me. The moment the childish response takes place and the person stands, two things happen. There's an incredible swelling of the ego. Incredible swelling of the ego. The whole thing grinds to a halt. It's me. Mm-hmm. Ever seen a child holding the ball while they all want to play? <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable moment. The child cannot yield. It just can't give it up. It just cannot give it up. They're all going crazy. It's me. <laughs> Remarkable thing. But the child doesn't realize the game's not happening. The only way to make it happen is to give that up. You've got to move back into sync with everything else. You give up that incredible power, and that, that's when you achieve it. That's when you come alive. You then achieve the dimension of the entire structure, not just your dimension. They all depend on you, and only on you. It's a remarkable thing. But that, that's maturity. The obvious learning ground for this, and we need to discuss it separately on another occasion, the most potent learning ground in life for this is called marriage. And that's why women do it so well, usually, even in this battered and perverted and broken down generation. And that's why men almost never get it right. Because marriage is a requirement to two people. Each person enters the relationship in the... Can you see this? All the women are going, hmm. And all the men are going, hmm. Understand? Marriage is is a situation where you enter it in the following... Correctly entered it goes like this. I put myself into this relationship. You enter the rela- relationship in such a way that you give yourself to the totality of what's being built here 
totally and utterly and fearlessly. There can be no reserve at all. There has to be a total annihilation of the ego, of the individualism. There has to be a melting into what the two people are building here that will be something utterly transcending what either of them are or what the two of them could be individually. It's achieved only by each one giving himself or herself absolutely, utterly, totally and fearlessly into this relationship. And you know what the paradox is? When you've done that successfully, you find that you didn't lose yourself. You find you suddenly discovered who you really are as an individual. When you give it correctly and you realize what suddenly there's a heightened sense of who you really are as an individual. And you know what you do with that heightened sense of individuality? You put it right back in fearlessly. And you know what that leads to? A greater climax, a greater peak that's reached in the, in the, in the building of this incredibly melted unity. And you know what that incredible experience does when two things that suddenly realize they're only components of a larger thing. You know what happens then? Each piece then suddenly realizes that I'm everything here. I'm only what I am because I gave myself away. But in giving myself away, I discovered who I am. It's a remarkable thing. Men take a lifetime. Men, usually, especially in Western society, when they're brought up on the other thing, they take a lifetime to even realize that there could be such a thing. And women generally have it as a natural gift. Generally. generally. Not always. That's what it is. And therefore... experience of the third level of order. You know, there are sources that say when the Torah was given, when the Torah was given, Moshe Rabbein and Moses walked around to every Jew. You know, this is called Digle Midbar, right? The, the flags or standards of the desert. Each tribe, you know that they walked in formation. They walked in a set formation. Four tribes, <coughs> right? Three tribes in a unit. Four groups of those. Within each tribe, each family stood in a certain place. Within each family, each individual stood in a certain place. And they walked in formation. Why? Just as nice to be organized. It's not like that. The deeper conception is that the Jewish people in the desert, when the Torah was coming down, Moshe Rabbeinu walked around to every Jew and he looked into that Jew's eyes and he said to him, you stand exactly here. And he walked to the next Jew and he looked into his eyes and he said, you stand exactly here. You know what he was doing? The Torah consists of many, many parts. And the Jewish people consist of many, many Jews. And each Jew has his own part in Torah. It's called your own chalik in Torah. When the Torah came down, each Jew had to be there to uniquely receive his own chalik. And when the Torah was coming down, in a metaphorical sense, Moshe Rabbeinu told every Jew metaphorically where to stand. So that as it came down, you'd be sure to receive your chalik in Torah. Your unique portion in Torah, that's your style, and your flavor, and what you have to learn, and teach, and bring out, and manifest in the world, it has to be yours uniquely. And if you wouldn't be standing in your place, you'd be standing over there, you'd receive nothing and not be alive, and your peace would fall on barren ground. And the Jewish people would be nothing. And the Torah would be a piece of... It would be, a, would be a Torah with one letter broken. And the whole thing would be invalid and the lights wouldn't come on. It wouldn't transmit. It wouldn't receive. But it takes maturity. It takes the maturity to say, but I want to stand there. I like what he's doing. I want to stand there. And they say to you, but that's not your gifts. That's not who you are. That's not your part. It couldn't come down on you. You have to be standing here. He said, but you're constraining me. Take away my freedom. Yeah, well, yeah, you're taking away your freedom. But that's where you become alive. Freedom doesn't mean going and doing what, the opposite of what they tell you to do. You know, in the, modern, in the modern notion, freedom is doing the opposite of what they tell you. That's the ultimate childishness. Freedom means that when your parents say, go west, you go east. Freedom doesn't mean that. Freedom means going east because you want to go east. Freedom means going west even when they tell you to go west, because you want to go west, not because they're telling you. Freedom means the independent mind is to do what's right. Freedom to do against what you're supposed to be doing just to prove that you're free. That's not freedom. That's total immaturity. 
It's the immature need to wreck the whole system to show that it depends on you. Yes, there's a psychological need to do that. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. There's a need to show how dependent you are on me. I'm going to sit and hold the thing for a while to see, the whole, to see everything collapse. A sense of tremendous power. But it's the ultimate paradox, because in that, in that evincing of power, which is a genuine swelling of ego, is a paradoxical experience of dying for that moment. Because the whole thing, the lights have gone out. You're not a light either, when that happens. And therefore, what the Jewish people is, is an integrated system in which every person has to discover exactly what they have to be doing. If you're a woman and you think you should be fulfilling a man's role, or vice versa, or you're an individual and you think you'd like to be doing what he or she is doing, and you'd like those gifts, and you could... You, Make a tragic mistake. You could never use those gifts. could never use them. But you're spoiling, you're spoiling his. You're spoiling yours. You're leaving a piece undone. The whole thing is not, not operating. This is a deeper level, by the way. For why Jews suffer even when one Jew does something. We're all held accountable. You know that? The non-Jews know this. You know that? What logic is there to hold me accountable for some Jew's immoral action? But they don't think that way. We have trouble assimilating it very often, but they don't. The world that the history has taught us. Right? A Jew in Paris does something today. They hold it against me directly. Absolutely directly. They hold me accountable. You know what? They're right. They're right. We're one body. The mystical sources say that if a Jew in Paris does something wrong today, I'm pleading here. I, 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 can, yeah, I have it against that person. He's letting me down. I'm letting him down. I'm accountable. And when I go up and put myself more perfectly into place, I draw him into place. You know that? When you move, work on yourself and you move yourself into place and you send out that resonance, at least from your part of the structure, that the thing's trying to work, you draw him in. We're all interdependent. You cut one hand and it bleeds. You're all in trouble. The other hand's in trouble too. Ah, it's not bleeding. When some Jew's bleeding someplace now and you say, well, it's him, it's not me, that's as foolish as saying, well, it's only that artery that's cut. It doesn't work that way. They're all interconnected. If it's bleeding from one point, the blood's going from everywhere. That's the nature of the unity of the Jewish people. That is the third level of order, the maturity that's required from each individual Jew, and at a larger scale, of course, every component in the universe, is to find the ultimate freedom, the ultimate achievement <coughs> of finding the ultimate constraint. That's the paradox. But when you're standing exactly where you have to be standing, and you give up all the potential and all the possibilities of standing every place else, in one sense there's a t tremendous constraint, and there's no place to move. But on the, other, on the other hand, everything's moving. Everything's moving and you're moving it. That's the paradox of love, marriage, and that's the paradox inherent <coughs> in being part of the Jewish people. It takes a tremendous skill, a tremendous subtle sensitivity. It's a thing that men have to learn from women, have to learn to master, and it's ultimately the reflection, it's ultimately the reflection in the human dimension of the oneness of the divine dimension.